Hi, this is Todd Leiter Weintraub from Hop on Pop, and you are listening to the Famous Cat Chronicle, episode one. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to episode one of the Famous Cat Chronicle. I'm Thomas Durkin. Today's guest is the leader of Hop on Pop, an excellent Chicago-based rock band led by the man who's our guest today, Todd Leiter Weintraub. I've been friends with Todd for many, many years, and I've seen his band, and I've seen how it's evolved, and I'm just fascinated by it, enough so that I want to share it with you guys. And that's what this podcast is going to be all about is sharing with you music you might not have heard or music you have heard and you want to hear the story from the artist themselves as to what went into it to make all that music and what their thoughts on music are. I am currently debuting this while the coronavirus pandemic is going on, so a lot of things are going to change about the way I originally intended this podcast to be. And that is something we all have to go through in order to make it happen. The reason I'm saying all this is that I initially had said in my preview episode that the first guest was going to be the safes. Well, that didn't happen for a couple reasons, good ones. So the first episode is Todd Leiter Weintraub, and I already have one episode in the can with John San Juan of the Hush Drops, which I am just thrilled to be able to present to you. It was a wonderful episode that I can't wait to present to you guys as well. But these larger episodes are a lot of work. I mean, I for this first episode, I had a lot of challenges that I've since been able to overcome for the second episode. But hopefully you'll be able to hear the love and care that went into this to make it what it is. To that end, I'm happy to present this to you. Now that I have presented this first episode, I will be able to have little mini-episodes. I have one already in mind. I took a road trip to Minneapolis back in January, and I I got to see my favorite Minneapolis-based tourist site. And it's probably not a lot of the ones that you're thinking of. But anyhow, keep your eyes open for that. I will keep you posted on that. The email address for us, because we love email here at the Famous Cat Chronicle, is famouscatchronicle at gmail.com. I know that's long and unwieldy, and I'm hoping I can get a shorter version of that by the next issue, the next episode. But until that happens, that's where you can reach us. Uh, What can I say? Enjoy the very first episode of the Famous Cat Chronicle. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to The Famous Cat Chronicle, and my esteemed guest is... Todd Leiter Weintraub of Hop on Pop. The, the name of the band is Hop on Pop. Yes. Dr. Seuss is... Yeah. Were you the one who gave the band its name? Yes. Okay. Explain. Really, I'm just baiting the Seuss estate to try and give me a cease and desist for publicity? <laughs> no. Uh, that's not the case. The whole point is I've always been a little bit of a chameleon, stylistically. While all of the styles can be considered pop of some form or another, it's I get a lot of comments that, hey, you know, these don't songs don't really sound all like the, the same style. So I'm hopping around, different styles. 
Okay, I see that. I I was going to mention that too. I I noticed that stylistic divergence, not as much on the first Hop on Pop, but more so, uh, drastically so sometimes, on uh, Chicken on a Bicycle. That was intentional. Very much so? Oh, yeah. What music was the first music to you that lit you on fire that made you realize, oh, wait a minute, that sounds good. How old were you, and, and what was it that first sparked you? It was when I was 13, and being an adolescent, male, white, 13-year-old boy in the early 80s, it was heavy metal. Okay. Uh, Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Okay. And it made me really want to play the guitar and play guitar really, really fast. Wow. Okay. What was the next step for you to go from a fan to making your own? Or what was the progression, I guess? Well, it was Judas Priest. Specifically? <laughs> I was specifically Judas Priest. I was listening to them. I remember the moment that the light bulb went off. I had a full-length mirror in my bedroom, mm -hmm. and I was playing air guitar in front of the full-length mirror. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was thinking to myself about the physics of it. Okay, wait a second now. I'd have to make the strings shorter to make them higher pitch because mm -hmm. that would make it vibrate faster. Mm -hmm. And I was trying, so I was trying to figure out so I could be an accurate air guitar player. And I thought, why don't I just do this with a real guitar? And I stopped and I called out of my room, Mom, Dad, I want a guitar. <laughs> sure you do, Todd. And uh, <laughs> eventually I persisted and eventually they found me a really cheap guitar because okay. they didn't think it was going to be anything that was going to last. Acoustic or electric? Um, first, it was a hand-me-down acoustic from my uncle. Okay. And then, uh, you know, but I wanted to play heavy metal. So uh, they f we got a cheap electric guitar from a flea market mm -hmm. because they still didn't think that I was going to continue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't even have an amplifier. I rigged it up through my stereo. I tried doing that once. It didn't work. It did. I got it to work. I don't remember oh, how. Mine remember sounded how. like utter garbage when oh, I tried doing it. Oh, it sounded like once. garbage, but it, it worked. And I was able to get sound through there. Eventually, uh, my father's a teamster. He was working. They had a NAMM show at McCormick Place at the time. Okay. And he picked me up a cheap amplifier from there. And Nice. As it appeared that I was going to actually maybe continue with this wacky thing, uh, I got better gear. So. <laughs> now... Okay, so for you, like, which specific, what was your point of entry for Judas Priest? Point of entry? <laughs> for, that, that's the name, that's of, an the name of it? Oh that's the God. name of an album, and that was the album I was actually listening to. <laughs> Folks, I am not versant in in Judas Priest, but oh my God, for, for all the places to have a point of entry, that sounds like a good one. Yeah, it was the album Point of Entry. The song I remember was Heading Out to the Highway. Okay. And I, it was, and yeah. <laughs> that's funny you nailed it that uh, without even trying ha happy serendipitous mistake in high school I read an interview with uh, Kirk Kirkwood in Guitar Player Magazine. And okay. he see, he dropped all the right names. He was into ZZ Top, and he was into the Grateful Dead, and he was talking, and he just seemed like such a weirdo that I was curious to hear his music and to hear the meat puppets. So I talked to the girl in my class who had the pink hair, and I asked her if she knew them, and she got all excited. And the next day she brought me a tape 
that she had dubbed for me of two of their records. It was Mirage and Up on the Sun, and that flipped me into the whole underground. So 13 was not only discovering music, it was also discovering that you had an itch to play music and create, well, I should say to play music. To play music. When did it cross over into, hey, I can be in a band, hey, I can write songs, hey, I'm pretty good at singing? What was the progression for those kind of things? Okay, Um, they're separate things. Uh, it, It became, I wanted to learn I really wanted to be a great guitar player. I wanted to play like heavy metal, speed stuff. And that evolved into classic, an interest in classic rock. Okay. You know, one of the great guitar players, especially Eric Clapton. I realized I was never going to be a great guitar player, but it didn't stop me from wanting to do it. And one day, uh, Halloween 1989, I and a friend of mine went to, I was in college in Columbia, Missouri. We went to a place called the Blue Note. And we went to a Halloween night show with Firehose. Yeah, the the Minutemen spinoff. Exactly. But the opening act was, was a band that was a bunch of local guys that played there all the time. And I'm like, they're supposed to be good. I never had any interest in seeing them. But Who were they? They were opening. So I thought I'd go see them. We caught them. And they were had their first record coming out. Yeah, I know. I'll get to it. <laughs> they had their first record. Come on, I'm building. No, I get They had their first record coming out. But it wasn't out yet. And they hit the stage on my arm. My arms were crossed. Great, I'm going to watch these guys. They launched into their first song. And within 10 seconds, my arms had dropped and my jaw had dropped open. It was a pre-No Depression Uncle Tupelo. Oh, wow. And so I realized at that point, I went and I bought the record the day it came out. And I listened to it. And it was one of those where I listened. I'm like, man, I'm like... The songs are so good. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't a great guitar player. I knew I never would be. But man, I could write songs. I can try to write songs. It's something to try. These guys do it, and they're awesome. But I'm not saying there's one wrong as dare comes along. What I see is true. I can learn to believe. That inspired me to start. And then I started listening to The Replacements yep. and other great songwriting bands. And I started realizing, you know what, it's, that's what it's all about. And so from seeing Tupelo, what was the next step? The next big thing that got me going on my music thing was probably when I heard Guided by Voices. What album? In, uh, B, uh, not B-1000, uh, Alien Lanes. Okay. At the old long-lost, lamented, God, I loved that place, Blackout Records on Southport. Okay. It was next door, to next door to the Music Box Theater. Oh, man. I uh, heard it there, and I said, what is this typical record store culture? Oh, yeah. It's this. I'm buying it. I took it home, listened to side one, flipped it over, listened to side two, flipped it back over, listened to side one again, flipped it back over, listened to side two again. <laughs> I said, oh, this is cool. And it was all lo-fi.
And I was recording um, real lo-fi demos at that time. Okay. Uh, I said, you know what? I wasn't going to show them to anyone because they sounded like such crap. But says you. Well, but then I realized their recordings. They're awesome. They sound like crap, but they're awesome. Somebody might listen to this and think it's okay. So I started letting people hear it. And from those, I sent those to those lo-fi demos to a guy who owned a record label that a friend of mine was signed to, uh, Spade Kitty Records, to Matt Walters at Spade Kitty Records. And he heard it, and he said, I love this. I said, cool, are you going to release it? He said, no. I want you to go and record in a real studio for me to record for me. And then I'll release that. What year is this? That was 2002. Hey, man, what's up? Hold on, hold on. I think you went too far ahead there, Todd. Let's slow down the DeLorean to some speed below 88 miles per hour. Wasn't there something that happened between Judas Priest and Hop on Pop? Maybe like another band you were in? The band was called Cash Cow. The record was called RBG. Ah, there we go. It was my second band, and I actually joined it. What year? Uh, or what era, I should say. 93. The record came out in 94. It didn't really come out. We never. That's what broke up the band, is the record never came out. But that's a whole long story. Anyways, um, I joined the bass player. My very, very first band was a band I put together because when I did start writing songs, mm-hmm. it was called Elemento. Okay, and uh, I was I was writing stuff that was very kind of folky, very REM inspired, okay. very and kind of Uncle Tupelo inspired a little bit too, but not as hard hard edge. Mm-hmm. I was in college though, and I had some other friends that were still at home. The bass player from that first band, he formed this punk band called Cash Cow. When I graduated college, I came back home. He wanted me to join the band and start writing songs for them too. He had started writing songs at that time also, and he's a very very talented guy became a really good good songwriter and a really good musician. We had four guys in the band and all four of us wrote songs. But they had their established their sound before I joined the band. It was more of a punk thing. And I thought it was fun. So I started writing the songs I was writing and I recontextualized them into more, to have more of a punk thing. And I thought it worked pretty well. I think the record we made it was 10 songs we recorded at King Size Sound oh, Labs. Oh, yeah, with uh, the Trumfios. With Dave Trumfio and Mike Hagler. It was in the original location. They had We were the, only the second band they ever recorded there. Oh, my gosh, wow. And uh, they had yet to even finish the construction work on there. They recorded one band before us, and that was Mekons. Okay. Oh, <laughs> a good company to be in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought so. It was the I Heart, awesome. Heart Mekons record was recorded there okay. just before we recorded. Now, had, do you know, had Langford moved to Chicago at this point? He was there. Okay, so... Yeah. John Langford was there. We knew Dave because I grew up in Highland Park, and Dave worked at a music shop up in Highland Park. And which shop? Uh, music gallery. Okay. They sold guitars. Okay. As opposed to a record store. Got it. The other guys knew him better than I did. They hooked up with him at the studio there, and my very first band actually recorded in his basement before he started King Size. What was the name of your uh, well, the, the, first the band? Elemento. Oh, Elemento was the first band. Elemento was the first band. We Cash record- Cow was was the second band. Okay. And then yeah, so and then Cash Cow broke up. What year? Like a year after we formed. We recorded the album. There was a whole thing with money about how we were going to press the record. It, it blew up, and so we wound up never releasing what I think was still a pretty good, pretty good record.
And, but that band broke up, and that led to then I stuck around with the other guy that I was in the old band with, the bass player. Well, he and I went back and forth on rhythm guitar and bass. Okay. When one of us was singing... Keep talking. When one of us was singing, whoever was singing was playing rhythm guitar. The other one went to bass. Grabbed a couple other people that we knew from high school, and we did another punk band called Chew Toy. Okay. Is there any recorded... <clears throat> evidence of them yes we recorded a four song demo okay and that was even less short-lived that was 95 and then we broke up joined i I did was looking around for a new band and eventually i answered an ad in the chicago reader for a band that was looking for a guitar player and they listed influences as the jam guided by voices yola tango and i said yes 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 and i gave them a call and i went to their rehearsal space and met them and they said, okay, here's, you know, I said, well, I, will I get a chance to write songs too? They said, yes. I said, cool, that's what I want to know. I said, but here's one of our songs. They started playing. What song was that? It was something that was never actually recorded, mm-hmm. but it was called uh, Pop Star. And okay. it was just, it was a very simple song, but yeah. the, the other guy was singing, it was just like. <laughs> but anyways, he, and there was a part in the middle, uh, the, the chorus was going. I wanna be one, and I listened to it. I'm playing my rhythm guitar part. He's ah, and I went ah, and I sang a, a harmony. Mm-hmm. And I saw at that very moment he and the other guitar player looked at each other and they went, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I just it just felt right. And after that practice, I said, so you know, do you think we can do this again? They're like, yes. <laughs> so um, yeah. <laughs> So and I played them a couple of my songs, and they liked my songs, and they already had their name. They were called Sub Rosa, but they had yet to play a gig. Anyways, that band kicked around for about a year and a half, and that was where we played lounge acts and such. Oh, wow. And then uh, that band, when that band broke up, uh, I kicked around solo acoustic for a little while. It was the first time I really did a whole lot of solo acoustic gigging, and it was fun. Under your name? Under my name. What were some of the venues? Lounge acts again, which okay. was cool. I mean, she... Speaking of Creation Records, I opened up for a band. I was solo acoustic. I opened up for a band on Creation at, at Lounge Acts, a band called Three Colors Red. I've heard of them. They, were, they weren't one of the big Creation bands, but just the fact they were on Creation, I got to open for them. I oh, was, yeah. And I'm sure you... I was like, yeah. I can hear you now. Were we even talking about Creation Records? Well, folks, there was a lot of this interview that got left on the cutting room floor. And I felt that the comet was good enough to include it, even though it's slightly out of context. Creation Records, for those of you who don't know, was a great British record company that existed from the mid-80s to the year 2000. Gave the world such great bands as My Bloody Valentine, Primal Scream, Oasis, Ride. The hits just keep coming and coming. House of Love. And so to have been associated with that back in the time frame uh, some pretty good stuff even if he just played a bill with this band but we both Todd and I have a great great uh, appreciation for creation records carry on and I met up uh, when I was in Sub Rosa uh, we met guys in a band called Post Office we we played gigs with them and uh, one of the guys is Larry O'Dean well when Sub Rosa broke up the bass player, Tim, went on to play bass with Larry. Mm-hmm. And they were signed to this Spade Kitty Records. So I said, oh. And that was when I sent my demos over. I said, you know what, I can 
talk to them, see if they can release something from me. The the label that we're talking about here, Spade Kitty, the way they have their name is really funny. It's imagine a garden spade and the word kitty. And I, I always thought that was such a clever name for a label. It was started by a gentleman. A gentleman? What? No. Okay. <laughs> a, a mutual acquaintance of ours. Uh, a good friend. I, I call him a friend. You know, I call him a friend, too. I'm just, I'm just giving him crap. Matt Walters. Uh, it was, uh, they were based out of Oak Park, where Matt lived and grew up. And uh, he had a he put out a few records. I have the I have the, the whole thing right there. <clears throat> yeah, the whole catalog. It was a lot of guys. Uh, a lot of the bands were actually Matt's friends from high school, mm-hmm. and Matt played on five or six bands that were signed to Spade Kitty. Wow. So Hop on Pop got signed to Spade Kitty. He I asked him to join, and he did. Wow! Because I was looking for a keyboard player. Found out that he uh, he played so. He also plays bass and or guitar, right? When I saw him, he does. Roxy Swain. I thought that he was playing bass or guitar. I'm not sure. He plays both. But in, in Hop on Pop, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, I use, I recruited back the drummer and the bass player from Sub Rosa, okay. uh, David Kling and Tim Ferguson, to be part of Hop on Pop. Uh, and then we just added, uh, again, the label owner, Matt. Yeah, I recruited him as a keyboard player. That okay. was his first instrument I found out. But he also, he's a pretty good guitar player, too. And so I had him... I don't. I still don't consider myself a great lead guitar player, so I like to have other people play leads. Beg to differ, but okay. The man is underselling his guitar abilities. So. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. But as far as soloing and stuff, I, I generally there's usually someone that can do it better than I, and so I will recruit somebody. And Matt was one of those people. He's a very good guitar player, so I recruited him. I still played a couple solos on on Hop on Pop. Uh, on the first record. Matt played more than I did, I think, solo-wise. For the second Hop on Pop record, I didn't have the same lineup. So, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. In due time. In the inner spread of your first album is a wonderful scribble. Evocative scribble. Yes. <laughs> is that the the title artwork to which you refer to? Yes. As okay. drawn by Ethan, age two. I've noticed for this first one, you you seem to have a very earnest kind of songwriting style. It, you sound like a man who is relatively newly married. You reference both of your children, not only in the title of the album, which is as drawn by Ethan H. Two, but also the song Carries Here, which I thought was incredibly sweet. It's got a very cool, bouncy, jangly piano. I mean, making this comparison to be a flattering thing, uh, similar to Ralph Colvert in the sense that it's unpretentious. You seem to wear your heart on your sleeve in a lot of ways, and you're still 
wide-eyed and optimistic, and that comes through in the songs. Would you say that that's a fair assessment of where your head was at the time? Yeah. With, with a couple of notable exceptions. There's one song <laughs> on there that I, I listened to that I want to ask you about a little later. But by and large, would you say that that's kind of where you were from a headspace? Yeah, I was I was writing a lot about my being a new dad. And the reason the album is called As Drawn by Ethan, age two, Ethan is my younger son. Mm-hmm. I had written Carrie's here, and I said, you know, I can't do something without referencing Ethan. So I got a song about Carrie. I'll name the album after Ethan. So yeah, um, I'd say I I write my songs usually, I've done some more kind of character type songs since then, but usually based more on my actual life. A lot of them are autobiographical. There are some that are really, really not autobiographical that, God, I hope no one thinks that they are. (laughs) There's a song uh, told from the point of view of an abusive husband who's tracked down his wife, who has run away. Yeah. And that's not autobiographical. <laughs> that was me. That was me trying to write a song Johnny Cash style, trying to be really dark and do a real dark story. Okay. So that was on the second. That's on the yeah, yeah. It's on I, Chicken I, on I, a Bicycle. Okay. Come on, angel, come on down. Although I know why you left town, I'm all this way to find you. Won't you please just come on down? Thinking about the monsters. I've been thinking about the hounds. Thinking I can duck them, won't you please just come on down? It won't be like it has been, oh, I can't tell you why. Can't promise I'll be perfect, but I can promise that I'll try. If you'll just come back home with me, we'll start from the ground. We can make it better, won't you please just come on down? You have had a couple of health problems. I listened to the lyrics of one of the songs on the first album, and I made me wonder if that's a reference to some of your health problems. Which one? I think it was uh, False Start. I listened to that, and I I guess I'm reading into it. Somebody for whom circumstances caused a fork in the road for you that you weren't originally expecting, but that you have come away with. Scarred but smarter, I guess. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like to tell people what my songs are about, because... Takes away the mystery? Well, not that. I mean, one time I, I wrote a song, and someone told me, I love that song, you know, it's, I love that it's about this. And I told him, I said, no, it's about the opposite thing, actually. And he, was, and he just looked crestfallen. And so I said, you know what? I don't think I should mention what my songs are about anymore. Because if it meant that to him and he really liked it, then let's let that stand. Okay. But on the other hand, you got it mostly right. I mean, I, I never thought about it that way, mm-hmm. but it could be. Okay. Is uh, that- it might have informed it, but it was, I mean, it was... I had brain surgery is one of the things you're talking about. I also have other health issues, but this was pre-brain surgery that, okay. that the song was written. I did Got have, it. Did you ever see the video of Hop and Pop when we played live on WGN-TV? No. Oh, i got to catch that. Yeah, well, that was the day before I had an MRI that told me that I was going to need brain surgery. Oh, my God. So that was that. I mean, that was, and that was after the first album came out. So what year is this? Oh, five. That I had the, so actually we're coming up on the 15-year anniversary as of right now. Oh, cool. Of my, my surgery. Okay. It was in February of, of 05 that I had it. I'm glad it worked. I'm glad you're here. I'm here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that it worked. It, yeah, it totally worked. Did it work? Yeah. I, I would assume so, yes. In, in some ways. Uh, enough anecdotal evidence to to um, to uh, to show that, yes, it has worked. Okay. All right. That's cool. 
<laughs> I, it, it might have been because I do have other health issues, and maybe that did partially talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I mean, mostly I think what I was talking about was the disappointment of uh, life just not going how you expect it to. So you can certainly read health issues into that. It seemed to me like the only thing to do. I thought I heard the gun, and so I started to run for the copper of false start. As a penalty, they put nails through my feet, and then one through my heart. And I would try to run, but it just keep falling down. Let's cover now the transition between your first album, as drawn by, to Chicken on a Bicycle. I've spoken to you previously about just I'll I'll let you tell the story, but big changes happen between the first album to the second album as far as the idea of Hop on Pop as a band per se versus Hop on Pop as a creative outlet for the musical genius of Tyler Lighter Weintraub. Well, actually, and getting back to the impetus for the name, Hop on Pop, as drawn, you know, the, the chicken on a bicycle thing, mm-hmm. um, is more in line of my original vision of the band Hop on Pop as well. Okay. Which was another reason that we were calling it a Hop on Pop, is I wanted to get different musicians to come on a board, mm-hmm. hop on for different songs, mm-hmm. and have a rotating lineup. Okay. Which I did, for the most part. With, kind of with, the with Steely Dan model of, of band. Sort of, yeah, I'm the Svengali. <laughs> um, <laughs> pulling the strings but yeah no so we had different people coming in for different songs after the first record there were there's some things that we you know it was a stable lineup but things kind of went I wouldn't say they went eh, okay sure they went sour a little bit but the fences have been mended. Okay. So I don't want to dwell on that too much because it's, you know, it's the past. One last thing, uh, uh, before we go into where, I was, where we were about to go with this answer, that initial period of your when your first album came out, I noticed a lot of the band personnel on the Spade Kitty releases at the time for a few, a couple of the bands. You, you mentioned that Matt played keyboard on like six different other bands. It reminded me a lot of the late 70s Asylum Records scene where you would have, like, Jackson Brown would help out with Linda Ronstadt, would help out with J- uh, Joe Walsh, would help out with the Eagles, and they all, and, you know, Timothy B. Schmidt was all over everything. How much of that either applied to the Spade Kitty situation or how much of that would be an illusion? Like, how much of it was, a, like, a friendly, professional thing versus... There was it was a little more contrived. It wasn't as friendly as it might appear on the surface. Oh, it was friendly. It was definitely friendly. It's kind of like Elephant Six too. Okay. In the nineties, yeah, everybody knew each other. We were all friends. We played on each other's records. I, I played on Hop on Pop, and I played with the Red Plastic Buddha, which was basically the same lineup as Hop on Pop, except led by the bass player, right, Tim, and a musically was, different motivation. Music, yeah, and uh, again that. That's where the tension came in for Hop on Pop. So okay. that's, you know, like I said, right, water under history. the bridge. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, and I also sang backing vocals on one Larry O'Dean record. Oh, um, which one? Gentrification is theft. Okay, so I did backing was this vocals. A post on, office or injured no, this parties? Was post, this was this was the me decade. Okay, people, you know, jumped around. We, um, I don't know that I had anybody else from Spade Kitty playing on any of the Hop on Pop records. 
but we uh, we certainly shared resources. Getting back to the case of how I'm not I'm not making any money playing music. Right, exactly. Yeah, which, mean, was, which, in some ways, I, correct me if I'm wrong, makes it a little more artistically pure. If if that's not your primary motivation, if you have, you know, to get all cliche uh, about it, if there's a song in your heart that has to get out in the world in some way, shape, or form, like, I, I guess if you can say this sequence of chords and these words put together makes me happy, and I'd love to share it with the world, that that kind of cuts out a lot of compromising that has to occur. Yeah, definitely. But getting back to the whole band thing, you know, there's compromising. Oh, yeah, have a band with any band situation. Yeah, yeah. again, that's what gets the chicken on a bicycle. There's no compromising. That was all me. So the stuff that's no good on there, that's uh, that's all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, oh, man. you know, you do what you do. But yeah, that one wasn't compromised. But yeah, there was a lot of compromising on the first Hop on Pop record. And honestly, there's a lot I would have liked to have changed on it. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a better record under there than what we released. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's there's stuff on there I'm proud of. Thank you for not going George Lucas and getting all revisionist on us and saying, okay, I'm re-recording this, and this is the only version available now. You know, like, Well, that's, that's happening next week. Oh, there we go. World, world premiere right yeah, here. Yeah, right. <laughs> on, the, on the Famous Cat Chronicle. <laughs> the way that can evolve is in its live performance, is the songs on here, you stop and say, okay, I had to play the song, you know, when I go in concert because it's part of my catalog and I'm proud of it, but... You can say this is how it could have sounded on record, and this is, might be a way to improve it. Except have you I ever done? That? I don't play with a band now these days, so it doesn't happen that way. By, ne- by necessity, or by, just yes, by necessity, and mostly by necessity. Okay, <laughs> because I don't have the time or the space to rehearse a full band. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so I just play solo acoustic now. But but yeah, I mean, there's there's songs on those records that turned out exactly the way I wanted them to. Mm-hmm. Fewer on the first one than on the second one. Yeah. But there's a couple. There's a couple. As much as things were meant to be, you were meant for me. As much as you were meant for me. So now you're you're starting to put out and record the the next album, which is Chicken on a Bicycle, album number two. And uh, I like I said, the first thing I noticed is right away with here. It is very synthesized, and that part of it is organic. Wow. I mean, it, it's, it, like you said, it's stylistically so different in a positive way from the first album. What was the mentality, the, the concept for going in so many different musical directions on the second album that wasn't present in the first? Uh, there's a little bit of a freeing up. I knew that I can get other people into play. You know, whenever you deal with the same group of Musicians, you deal with the same limitations from song to song. I didn't have that. I could say, you know, I want someone else here. You know, if they, if I can't get this played this way, maybe this person can play this way. And, you know, maybe and with here, in particular, it was, it was a big stylistic jump. That was very, I would almost say Machiavellian. I don't think that as a composition, 
Here is one of my better songs. Compositionally, it's three chords, very simple melody. But I had an idea in my head for an experiment. Lyrically is where that thing packs its punch in my eyes. Thank you. Welcome. I I was looking at, musically. I was trying to experiment with it a little bit, though. I hear a little bit of wire. Uh, or uh, thank definitely you. in. Uh, <laughs> I think in tortured artists, I definitely hear wire in in that one in the the, the chordal sort of structure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit spoon too, maybe. Okay, but yeah, with here I wanted to get to the point that I was. If you listen to here, you'll notice the the the, the melody goes like uh, da, 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 during the verse. Inspired by a song by John Cale and Brian Eno. God, what the heck is the song? It's from the from the one record that they did together. It was the single. Eno Kale, uh, songs for Jella. No, no, no. Eno, that's read. Th- yeah, no. Eno, Eno and Kale is called uh, Wrong, Wrong Way, Way Up. Up. Yes, Lay My Love is the song. And in that song, there is a viola part that pretty much goes the same way throughout the entire song. And it plays through the whole song. I wanted to take with here with that. I wanted that melody to go throughout the whole song. So if you listen to it, during the verse, it's me singing. All my roads are paved in good intentions. And then the chorus, I go, I'm right here. But in the background, that melody is picked up by the synthesizer. Behind it, if you listen. Yeah. Yeah. And then back to it during the verse. And then it drops out during the guitar solo, which isn't so much a solo as an instrumental break, where that melody is picked up by the guitar. I play that on the guitar. Yep. And then it comes out into the chorus where I say, I'm right here. But that melody's picked up by the synth. So that melodic line plays constantly through the entire song. And that's why, and I just wanted that thread to run through. So I was experimenting in that way. I whiteboarded it. I actually whiteboarded the entire song. I sit down, sat down with a piece of paper and I made little notations, not music notations, because I don't know how to read or write music, but a little money, like shorthand as to what instruments were going to do what in which place. Um, I wanted to build tension during the verse and break it during the chorus. So during the verse, I sang in my lower register and my higher register, which were both relatively uncomfortable for me, but I sang <laughs> that. So and that then, was intentional. Intentional. And then for the chorus, I sang in my natural register in the middle, which sort of... for me it sounds that way I mean, maybe it does doesn't for other people no, yeah, but it, but, it, but that's you know for me it's kind of a release of tension as well and i also wanted to i like i wanted that synthesized part so i that little bloopy 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 thing uh there's a bloopy for those of you who haven't heard it there's a bloopy thing in there um i just <laughs> i'll play you some of it uh it, basically i just took the click track and i wanted to see what we could do i worked with a guy named noah uh who's a great guy he helped me with the technical part of it, but he, uh, I asked him, I said, Noah, you know, there's pitch correction. You know how when Britney Spears can't sing and you got to make her hit the right note? Can we do that to the click track? Because it just goes beep, beep, beep. So you can keep time. He's like, yeah. 
So I kit that on there and I pitch corrected those so that way they were in tune with the song. And I made that during the verse to sort of add some. So I, I can't, and this was in my head. It was the first time I ever did something like this where I had a whole thing in my head mm -hmm. and I was able to execute it. And like I said, I, I whiteboarded the thing and it came out exactly the way I wanted it to. That's and I was, perfect. I was very, very pleased with that song. That's perfect. So, That's awesome. and I thought that it was a good track to lead a. Plus, it was such a different sound. And I wanted to start off the record with something that said, hey, this is a different thing. <laughs> so I made that the first song. My roads are big and good intentions, good intentions, big and goes to hell. Sheila of the Worms. Explain to me, uh, I know you, you're not going to, you already told me you're not going to give me the story on on there, but is there any either autobiographical or this is based on a real person to that song, or is it just a wonderful vignette? It's a vignette. I mean, I think we all feel like weirdos sometimes, and it's just about being a weirdo and not fitting in. And, uh, you know, I did it in the form of sort of a fantastical story, which... You know, sort of Robin Hitchcock inspired. Yeah. You know, the, the you know, a girl who finds her friends with worms underground. She doesn't fit in up above ground. She buries her head in the sand and lo and behold there are a bunch of worms who are willing to accept her. Uh so yeah, just a That's cool. a weird little story about a weirdo who doesn't fit in. It's kind of a, a cross between Robin Hitchcock and Harry Chapin. So a little bit of a little bit of Jonathan Richmond influence too, I think. There we go. She heard, she heard the worms screaming. They said, bring Sheila back, bring Sheila back. The worms had all been crying, they cried. Bring Sheila back, bring Sheila back, gotta bring her back to earth. Bring Sheila back, bring Sheila back. The worms had all been screaming, they yelled. Bring Sheila back, bring Sheila back, gotta bring her back to earth. All right, I have to ask. I've seen you do this live, but I listened back to the song Tortured Artist, and like you were mentioning about its staccato rhythm, which reminds me of Wire. That, how do you do that playing it live? Basically, meaning having to keep a metronome in your head and play on essentially the two and the four but sing on the one and the three how do you do it i, I wouldn't be able to do it myself is what i'm saying i don't honestly i i don't play that song very often okay. and it's not for those reasons it's the reasons is i can never get it to sound the way i want it to not because i can't hit the rhythms but just because it it needs more of an arrangement mm -hmm. i think I wrote the lyrics to that song in the studio because I knew I had the whole song written except for the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And I had an idea for what the song was about. I didn't know how I was going to get there. So for me, for a song to really click with me, there has to be something to it that clicks with me. <laughs> the lyrics, I don't think they're terrible, but mm -hmm. they're one of the things, though, that it's like it doesn't, it doesn't fully resonate mm -hmm. on the other hand i do like the song mm -hmm. because i really like the arrangement I, li I like the way that it's a it's, very clever song i like the way that it's that it's 
it's written. Mm-hmm. Everything else about it besides the lyrics I really like. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's I mean obviously there's one line in there that I think is very clever that <laughs> it's not family friendly, but it's but I you know and it's it's sort of you know give myself a pat on the back. Uh, you know, it's called tortured artist, you know, it's writing about how, you know, happy to be miserable because then I can <laughs> then I can create art. But uh yeah, so there's the one line at the end, a repeated line. You know what I'm going to say because you've heard the song. Yes, I have. It's yes, I have. Called, it goes, I just want to be there when the shit hits the fan, catch it all in a bucket and use what I can. <laughs> I just want to be there when the shit hits the fan, catch it all in a bucket and use what I can. I just want to be there when the shit hits the fan, catch it all in a bucket and use what I can. I just want to be there when the shit hits the and I think that that just kind of sums up the whole aesthetic of, you know, the whole, yeah, I want to be miserable because I want to use it. <laughs> so Capture your misery and monetize it. Uh, yeah, well, I, I've obviously failed at that. <laughs> but it's... uh but hey, we're still young. But it's... Uh, speak for yourself. But no, I, I like the song. Like I said, it was the, the lyrics were kind of rushed, and I always feel that. So I don't really play it live. Um, as far as can I? Yeah, I can. How do I do it? practice yeah i mean there's other songs that are like that too but that, you would agree that it it with a rhythm with a song with a rhythm like that where it's easier to do that in the studio having to do it live is it like walking and chewing on that kind of complex muscle memory i guess it's more like juggling because yeah it's it, it takes some practice but once you learn how to do it you can do it can I tell you a quick diversion, juggling diversion story? Sure. I was at Dumbledore. Frisbee was performing, I want to say it was like 2002. And uh, it was an excellent show, but they weren't aware of the other acts that were on the bill. And Steve Frisbee had heard, I guess, at some point what it was, and he didn't believe it. He thought they were joking with him. He said at the end of their first set, and if anybody sees a juggler come on stage, make sure to beat the shit out of them. Thinking, you know, they're not going to put a juggler on. Sure enough, there was a juggler <laughs> between their first and second set. And I said it to Steve because I said, you cracked me up when you said that. He's like, there really was? I'm like, yeah, there really was a juggler. He's like, oh, my God, I feel so bad. I thought they were kidding around with me when they said there's going to be a juggler. <laughs> I want to say it was somebody like Andrew Bird. I, I really think it was somebody who, the juggler was somebody who was famous. So was he juggling and whistling then? I don't know. I, it, he had on this hat and, you know, like the shirt and the vest and everything. And it was a very stylized, very, I mean, you know, it's artistically wonderful, but it was quirky. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Jonathan Richmond. Can, you know? Jan, can, can Andrew Bird just do fucking anything? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy's, a, the guy's an amazing polyglot. <laughs> Jesus. I know. It pisses me off. Well, you know. Can I say? Not all of us can be Andrew Bird. And he's from Lake Forest, too, for crying out loud. <laughs> Break my heart. No, I said this all before still. Break my heart. Pick me back up off the floor. Break my heart. So now, so Chicken on a Bicycle comes out. It's something that still it has aged rather well in my thank opinion. Thank you. Thank I, you. It really has. I can understand why it can be somebody's soundtrack of a college years. It's got just the right amount of cynicism and jadedness and but it's really intelligent and you do kind of go a whole bunch of places rather well. Thanks. Yeah. 
Thanks. So this comes out, and at this point in your career, you've got two CDs out. What's been your take on how you've been received? I mean, has it been gratifying? Has it been you know disheartening? A little bit of both. What, as an artist, how important is the the aspect of of knowing how much you reach or don't reach? How important is that to you in the song creation process these days? That's a good question. Eh, I obviously want people to hear my music. Mm-hmm. I do. It's important to me. I want to reach people. But obviously I'm still doing it. I haven't reached many. And I'm still doing it. So that's that can't be the number one reason. But I'll, you know, I'll just keep doing it until, you know, for as long as I'm amused. <laughs> the most disappointing thing was the reaction to the first Hop and Pop record. Really? Yes. Explain. It's my first record. In my head, I was going to light the world on fire. This was going to be it. Here it comes. And I, a lot of reaction I got was, gosh, this isn't very well produced. What? I kind of thought the same thing. I was just, I, I thought that the songwriting would carry the day. I still think the songwriting there was strong, and I still think that the production could have been better on a lot of it. Like I said, a couple songs turned out the way I really wanted them to. But some, I mean, there were a couple songs that were, I thought were really strong, and I went back and listened. I'm like, this is not what I wanted it to sound like. And uh, again, that comes back to the whole compromise of a full band. Had I been able to see into the future, I would have taken the reins a little bit more firmly and known, hey, you know what? This is my project. You're here, and you're contributing, and I appreciate it. But it's my project, and I want this to sound how I sound. I'm bankrolling it. But still, I mean, that's... That sounds very ungracious to the people that I worked with. I don't mean to sound that way. They, I don't think so. I, I they, understand what you're saying, can, but not necessarily. I mean, if if a lot of the germ of the idea comes from you, and I mean, some artistic collaboration is constructive, others not so much. And I think now that you're in the position that you are, seeing where you could have course-corrected things, I think that's every artist's prerogative to a point. I think, you know what, I think a lot of it had to do with a lack of confidence. I let myself get walked over a little bit by some of the other band members thought, no, this is going to be a democracy, this is going to be great. And, you know, it shouldn't be a democracy. And it really, really called out to me when I was recording one of my newer songs. I mean, God, it's not that new now. One of the songs for One by One, which... The third record. Yeah, it was a song that I was working with a couple of musicians that I was frankly a little bit intimidated by. Really good musician. Came time to make a decision about something. I was like, all right, well, should I do this? Should I do this? And the engineer, my friend John, he looked at me. He goes, Todd. I said, yeah. He goes, are you producing this record? I said, yeah. He goes, produce the goddamn record. <laughs> and it was... Good words of wisdom. Yeah, and I and it it's like you know what? You're right. This is my record. I don't care how good these people are. That That's why they're here, because they're damn good. But this is my song, and I'm producing this damn record. Have you seen the movie Sound City with Dave Grohl? Yes. There is a scene in there where, at this point, Dave Grohl has possession of the fabled magical Nev board. Neve? Nev? Anyway. I don't remember how they pronounced it. They've, they've got the board back in Dave Grohl's home studio, and Butch Vig is behind the board, and Paul McCartney is in the studio with his interesting cigar box bass. Yep, I and this. and Butch Vig tells McCartney how he wants it. He's polite about it, but he's firm. He wants the song to sound a certain way, 
And Dave Grohl is seen off camera saying, oh, my God, Butch Vig is telling Paul McCartney what to do. <laughs> but that's the role of a producer. Yes. And that's and that was a valuable lesson learned in, in 10 seconds in the studio one day, which I wish I had learned sooner. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, if you're producing the record, produce the goddamn record. Yep. From then on, I think, I think that my newest songs I've been doing for this one by one, I think I've had a little bit more confidence since then. Looks like we made it to the middle Never ever thought we'd get this far Never get the chance It's good. I, I think that these recordings are the best recordings I've I've ever made. Now, explain what the concept behind this is and how the recording process differs from your two Spade Kitty Records albums. This is Chicken on a Bicycle Exponential. Whereas with Chicken on a Bicycle, I hopped around, I grabbed different people. I still did it over a, a, a limited period of time. I wanted to get it out. I wanted it done. This, I've been taking my own damn time. Everything is more spread out. I'm recording these songs. Not only are they stylistically differently, although I have to say, listening back to it recently, they're not as stylistically divergent overall as Chicken on a Bicycle is. But nonetheless, they're stylistically divergent. I'm, but I'm recording them sometimes two, three years apart, just one, two songs. And as I'm recording it, I'm putting it onto my Bandcamp page, releasing it as soon as it's done. So I'm building the, the record Basically, I won't say in real time because Lord knows it's been 10 years since I released Chicken on a Bicycle. Mm -hmm. But I'm putting them up as I finish them. And right now I have eight songs online and I have another two songs to go until I decide to call it a day and say, okay, the record's done. The more that we touched, the more we smashed to dust. Once that does get done, what are the plans for either a physical release or a digital release? I don't know that it's worth it to burn CDs anymore to dump that kind of money in there. If a label shows interest, I would love for them to be able to help me do that because I still like the physical artifact. I've never really, I've never really, <laughs> I've never released an album on vinyl. If I could oh. do that, I would love to have a vinyl record. I know this guy. He's got a label called Spade Kitty. He's released one of his other bands, Roxy Swain, these gorgeous slabs of vinyl on uh, Spade Kitty Records. You might have heard of them. Yeah, I think I've heard of them. We'll see. I don't know if he's interested. But, uh, <laughs> well, considering I have the singer from Roxy Swain on one of those songs. In fact, that was the song that I was told to just produce the goddamn record. Yeah. Because it, okay. uh, it was Roxy's dad that was the guitar player that I found kind of intimidating. Oh, wow. Jack Swain. Yeah, he's oh, a great wow. guitar player. You I would love to have it on vinyl or CD if it's in the cards to do so. 
months, hopefully soon. I've got a couple more songs written, and uh, I just need to go record them. I need to find the time. I'm, my drummer, Dave, who has pretty much been my drummer since forever. And I hate to call him my drummer because he's more than that. He's the drummer. And he also plays keyboards and he also can play a little guitar. And he's he's a talented, again, a polyglot, right? Talented, talented guy. But he has a, a young child now, so it's harder to get together with him. And I'm not placing blame on you, Dave, if you're listening. <laughs> nor on you, Jen. Or especially on you, Callie. We're not going to name names. No. So as soon as I can get people together. I did actually just last week I got together. There's a newer song that I wrote. Well, that I wrote. Um, that I co-wrote. I've n- I, I don't often do co-writes. Last week I got together with a friend of mine who is an excellent drummer. His name's uh, Stefan Conkey. He was in a band called Dot Dot Dot. And okay. he's currently in a band called Toy Robots. Okay. We became friends when I met him when he was working at a music store. And we always say we want to we wanna jam together. We want to jam together. He played drums on one of these songs on One by One. And I have a couple half-written songs. I said, you know, he had the time. He came over and we finished up one of these half-written songs, he and I together. So that was cool. So I don't know if I'm gonna, if that's going to make it on one by one or not, because I don't know if it's a Hop on Pop song. Okay. Obviously, Hop on Pop first album was a band, you know, and all that entails. Hop on Pop the second album seemed to be what World Party is to Carl Wallinger. It's kind of a very convenient handle upon which he can show the world his songs and not be accredited to Carl Wallinger. Is that a similar situation with Hop on Pop, do you think? Yes, or Nine Inch Nails, or any of those other sort of one-man bands. Jason Arducey's current band is Split Single. Yeah, or Self with Matt Mahaffey. Yeah, any of those sort of one one-man... Not one man bands necessarily, but you know, songwriter based project. Where it's some, a band name as opposed it's a band. It's it's a. I, and the only reason I'm doing it that way is because, well, a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm not playing everything, and I don't want to give the impression that I am. And second of all, I have some investment in the name Hop on Pop. I got a couple records out under that name. There's brand equity. Yeah, I want to maintain that. If they, if I have a song like this new one that I don't think is necessarily a Hop on Pop song, I might release it as you know something else, not another project, or we'll see. But I wouldn't mind working with Stefan again as far as having him record if, if Dave's not available. Stefan did play drums on one of the other songs. That, that Dave didn't play drums on every song. Uh, Stefan played drums on one song on One by One. We'll see. I mean, hopefully I'll be able to get it done within the next year that I'd like to finish this up and get it out there. If anybody purchased it at Bandcamp.com before it was completed, I'll search them out and I'll make sure I send them the completed version. Because if you paid for it, it's only right you get the full thing. You felt the things I'm feeling You knew the things I know Don't read too much into it Just let it go, 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 go Your music has been actually covered by other people, which it's had, which I thought was amazing. How does that make you feel to know that your music has a global reach beyond the Chicagoland area? And how who has covered your music? Um, how does that manifest itself? How did that even get out there, I guess? That's what the internet is a beautiful thing. A couple of the people that covered my music are people that I know personally. It's awesome. I mean, anytime anyone covers one of your songs, it's like the highest compliment you can ever get as a songwriter. Who are the ones who have covered your music? One of my former bandmates in uh, my the very first song I ever ever wrote, the guy in that I was talking about Elemento, mm-hmm. the guy who I went on to Cash Cow with, mm-hmm. he covered the very first song I ever ever wrote. Wow! In Which one of was? his old bands, it's called Every Cane. Okay. And uh, 
and there, and that's okay. We're doing this in the amazing, glorious basement studios of uh, the corporate headquarters of Famous Cat Chronicles, so you'll get the occasional whooshing of water through pipes. <laughs> but yeah, so he, he covered one of my songs. The song was called Every Cane. I wrote it after viewing Citizen Kane for the first time. Okay. And kind of taking some of those themes and applying it to myself. Okay. Then another band, former bandmate, a guy who was also in Cash Cow with us, mm-hmm. recorded his version of a song that I wrote for Cash Cow. Mm-hmm. And then there was a guy, another person I knew personally, a guy that I work with who is the guy that I usually record with when I record these days, who is a fantastic songwriter and singer himself, did a version of a song that's on Chicken on a Bicycle. What song? Uh, here. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but he did it. He took it, and the way it is on Chicken on a Bicycle is it very synthesizer and fuzz bass. He just did it as if it's a straight-up pop song. Wow. He's got an amazing voice. He's one of my favorite. He's one of, he's, he's a friend of mine, and he just happens to be one of my favorite singers in the world. Tell me it again. Uh, his name is John Swamy, and okay. he has a band called Happy Ashtray. Okay. So he did a version of that, and he never released it. He just kind of covered it and sent it to me so I could hear. It was pretty cool. And uh, then the other ones were done by people that I had never met in person. Thus is the beauty of the internet, uh, which is always super cool. It's, again, crazy, crazy complimentary. Some of the versions are really, really good, too. A couple of them I'm not as crazy about, but I don't care. Right, because yeah. It's, it's, any, any attention it's, is it's, good it's, attention. It's, well, not just attention, but just flattery. I yeah. mean, it's really super nice. Oh, yeah. That they like it. But, yeah. Getting back to the story. Yeah. Um, of the of the movie of the movie thing they're yes. making a movie out of the blue one day literally i get a, a message on my uh i think it was a, was it a facebook message or like yeah it must have been a facebook message hi todd you don't know me my name is zach i just wanted to tell you that your record chicken on a bicycle was the soundtrack of my life when i was in college and i promised myself that if i ever made a movie one day, I was going to use one of your songs in my movie. Wow. Well, I'm making a movie. Oh, my God. And I went, huh? <laughs> <clears throat> and I contacted him back. I, you know, How did you hear about us? Where did you find us? He's, you know, he said the CD was the soundtrack of his life. How did you find the CD? He found it at like it was... It was at a, one of those like seed record fairs or something. He saw, yeah. saw the album cover, it grabbed his attention, he bought it, and he loved the music. So he found this through and one of those record fairs? Yes, and he contacted me. And what I, state? Where? Uh, this was in, I think he went to school in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I don't know even how it got there, but that's okay. Internet, yay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but also, too, imagine the promotional, the radio promotion or magazine promotion efforts of Spade Kitty as it was at the time. You know, saying, hey, we got this brand new Hop on Pop CD. We'd love to send it to you. And then the way it happens is it gets in the hands of radio station workers who are a lot of times college students. And then they decide they like it or decide they don't. And if they don't like it, it gets sold for beer money at the local, you know, used record store. Yep. And that's probably what happened to it. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, he's based out of New York City now. We worked out a deal where he could use a song from a different record, though. It was actually a song from the first Hop on Pop record mm-hmm. uh, called For My Friends.
That one is a song that I wrote in college, actually. So it's an old, that's the oldest song on that record. I wrote it with a couple college friends of mine. Played it with my college band, but never recorded it. And then I liked it enough that I wanted to record it. And so I did. Since you are a performing musician, I've seen, I, I'm saying this just as a fan, I have seen you go on stage and confidently sing a bunch of original material and sell it. And I, I'm just Thanks. amazed by that because it's, it's a skill I don't personally have at the moment. I do play guitar, I do sing, and I'm somewhat good at both, not anywhere near as good as you. When you go on stage and you perform, how much of it is as easy as you make it look and how much of it is just a really good act and you're hiding your anxiety? I think I just enjoy it. So I think it's, I'm not selling it so much as I'm just having fun. And I think that the fun maybe sells it for me. Is there anxiety tied to it? Not as much as there used to be. I think I just go up there and I say, what the hell, let's just do this. And I just play. Playing solo acoustic, there's no band to hide behind, so there's, I guess there's a little anxiety there. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I forget lyrics occasionally, and I'll, I'll screw up the chords occasionally, and there's nobody there to help me. So, on the other hand, there's nobody there that is playing the right chords that I uh, am playing the wrong chords against. So, that's, uh, that's a thing. <laughs> the other thing is, if you screw up a lyric, in a lot of ways, you're the only one who knows it. And if you really wanted to, you can always hide behind the fig leaf of, oh, it was an artistic decision. Well, that's also a bonus of not being very well known, is that people don't, <laughs> people don't know my lyrics. So if I screw it up, I screw it up, and nobody else is the wiser. So I just have fun with it. People have compared live, I mean, my energy at least, to Jonathan Richmond, which I take as a huge compliment, because, frankly, he's an inspiration. I think that, you know, I, I like joking with the audience. I like interacting with them and it seems to come easily to you you know you're very you have an easy going style to it it's i think it's just my personality you know my wife says it's just because i'm annoying <laughs> uh, she says you know you, wives have a funny she says she says she, like she, she no she no that she doesn't say it. she said you're a squawker you'll squawk <laughs> with anyone and that includes audiences so and yeah and my kids agree yeah dad you're just a squawker you mentioned that you think I'm a good singer, and I appreciate that. But I just need to let you know that I I think I'm a better singer than I was. Um, but I, singing never came easy to me. Why not? I, because I, I wasn't a good singer. In whose eyes? In everybody's. <laughs> I was terrible. You should hear the recordings of my first attempts. They're awful. The only reason I started singing was in college. And I'm telling this story because I think it's a, a fun story. There was a guy in our band who was a good singer. He had that sort of classic, I mean, almost like, you know, Paul Rogers from Bad Company, that sort of soulful, you know, pre-Pearl Jam, you know, throaty thing. Great singer. Name's Trey. And uh, I wrote songs, and I would bring them to the band, and I brought, one time I wrote a song, I brought it to the band, I'm like, here, Trey, I said, here, here's the lyrics, here's how it goes. And he's he's country guy. Had you know a bit of that country G whiz? So like, dude, I'm like, here's the lyrics. He's like, I'm not singing this. What do you mean? He goes, dude, you wrote the song, you sing it. <laughs> but I can't sing, Trey. I don't give a shit. Sing the damn song. That's funny. So, and he doesn't have that severe of an accent. I, you're, you're I'm exaggerating. exaggerating it for the crowd. 
he forced me into singing for the first time. I started, like I said, you listen to some of those early attempts, they're awful. I mean, because I, I didn't know how to sing. I didn't know what my limitations were. And I tried to sing what I heard in my head, which wasn't necessarily what I could accomplish. Eventually, you you get to learn your limitations. You get to know your voice. The more the more I sang, the more I got to know my voice. And like I said, I still don't consider myself a great singer, but I learned my limitations. And the more you sing, you also learn a little bit more how to control. So practice. I you know, if I can sing, anybody can sing. If you can hear a note, you can sing it. Now I'm not saying some people can't hear a note because some people can't. But it does democratize the process. So, which leads me to my next question: as a performing artist as well as a fan, what do you know that about the process or about performing that somebody on this side of the stage, this side of the microphone might not know? I don't think I know anything more. Just It's experience. You do it, you learn it. And the more you do it, the more you learn about how to do it. It's like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Cool, you know? The process of songwriting is still magic to me. Yeah, I go back and I work my songs and I, I do my edits and I try and figure things out. But for the most part, songwriting is not easy, at least to write a good song. I mean, I can sit down and I can write you a really crappy song right now. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but I mean, to write a decent song, or at least a song that I think is decent, um, I can't necessarily do it. It, It's a lightning bolt. And uh, there's got to be a germ there, and then there has to be, you know, it's 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 alchemy. You got to have the right germ, and then something has to happen to trigger it. And then from there, after you have that, you can work it, and then it takes work. And uh, I go back and I write and rewrite my lyrics, and I see where it's working and where it's not, and I'll listen to the song that I'm writing, and I'll say, well, this isn't working. How can I do that? But ultimately, it has to come from that sort of lightning bolt to start with there have been a couple songs here and there that i've written in five minutes they just came out fully formed and those are you know probably you know like the best songs that because they just come out it's that's just like pure magic uh where you don't even know what you did I, did i write this what's one of your songs where you look back and you say that <clears throat> is not only came out exactly how <clears throat> i wanted it i am i'm proud that song came out of me there's a couple. Um, I won't be shy. I won't be. I won't be. I won't be modest. Here's your time. Songs that I'm proudest of. I mean, well, there's a couple of different categories. I mean, there's the productions I'm proudest of, which obviously I haven't mentioned here earlier. The way I did that, I'm really proud of the way that production came out. The song itself, meh, it's okay. The song, as far as songwriting, well. It's also hard because when you've been playing a song for, you know, 25 years, it's not as fresh and exciting to you anymore. But I guess looking back on it, um, Carrie's here. I'm proud of that one. I'm proud of a song called I Got It Back, which Sharon, my wife, always tells me is her favorite song of mine.
Dave, the guy who plays drums with me frequently, he he's a master's degree from University of Chicago. He has given me a dissertation on the lyrics to "I Got It Back." It's on. Uh, it's drawn by Ethan. Okay. Gosh, there's there's a couple songs on one by one. I'm really proud. Again, these are fresher songs, so maybe over time I won't be as proud of them. A song called "We Made It to the Middle." To me, it sounds like something that. One of those songs, at least as far as when I hear it, it's, to me it sounds like it's one of those things that's always existed. At least the chorus. And there's a couple of lyrics in there that I sound as worked as they are. But I think that it sounds overall like it's something that I pulled out of the ether. And that's that. I think that's what makes a good one is if it sounds like you know it sounds like I pulled it out of the ether. That's when I think that it's a good one. That one. Uh, that's one of those. So, and. I'm one of the more again it probably because it's like my newest recording uh is one called uh this ain't no race which was a chord progression i had kicking around for a couple years and one day i sat down and again it took two years to write the thing but really it took five minutes because i had i wrote this chord progression in a couple of minutes i loved it and i was kicking around didn't have anything to do several years later i finally wrote down and the lyrics just came spilling out years between the two but ultimately it was as far as actual writing time it didn't take that long Excellent. Well, you, I see you've brought your amazing strum box with you. Would you grace us with a song? Are you are you comfortable doing that in this? Uh, in I the... am. I am. I'll be more comfortable if I can you get, want to do it get comfortable. We can do it standing. We can do it sitting. However, you're most. Comfortable. Let me stand because I've been sitting for a while. Yeah. Hold on. Reposition the microphone. You've seen me wiping my nose a little bit today. I so my voice isn't necessarily at its finest, but. Like I said, I've never been the finest singer anyway. I think we have a very forgiving crowd here anyway, so. All right. Anything you want to hear? Surprises. All right. Um, I'll do this Ain't No Race. I was just talking about it. Well, I've been tied up. Now I'm tied down and I'm tangled up in knots. No, it ain't the worst place I could be I'm busted up and broken down and lost everything I got I got someone to share the debts with me But I owe a lot, she owes a lot, we're never catching up But I never felt the need for saving face You know we can't keep up, what we never caught Besides it's way too late Broken up no, this ain't no race Oh yeah, the Joneses will spoons the miles They can pay for their head starts Dad is all strapped rockets to their backs We can barely pay our entry fee So when the gun went off We were left behind Back of the pack And now we can't keep up What we never caught Besides, it's way too late Rolling up no, this ain't no race Here's where the guitar solo goes This ain't no race Oh yeah, the Joneses were born with spoons and miles They could pay for their head starts Daddy's all strapped rockets to their backs we could barely pay our entry fee. When the gun went off, we 
were left behind Back of the pack And now we can't keep up What we never caught Besides it's way too late Rolling up No, this ain't no race Oh yeah, we can't keep up What we never caught Besides it's way too late Rolling up No, this ain't no race Yeah Rolling up No, this ain't no race One last time That's excellent. Thank Thanks. you, man. Definitely. Thanks. Do you want to do one more? If you want me to. How about do uh, Carrie's hair? It's in a complimentary key. So? That's good. You want me to do... I could say do Tortured Artist. I want to hear every last curse word because this is a podcast. All right. You want me to do Carrie's hair? Go for it. And I'm going to take pictures just for the podcast. And I'll make faces at you. That'll work. Right on. Carry on. So to speak. What? Carrie. Oh, never mind. Five o'clock in the morning Sunday my day off Sun's still down but you are up You start to babble and then you call And your eyes must be open now Cause you start to cry My bare feet make the floorboards creak So get to find out why So right now Daddy's here Before I turn them on And I say, shh, it's okay Your eyes light up when they meet mine And a smile crinkles your face And my heart starts swelling up Think it's gonna burst The side of your face makes skip 12 beats Missing you is the worst So right now, Carrie's here Never knew that I could never know. I never knew that I could never know. It's Monday morning and I'm going to work. You're still sleeping when I leave. I don't get to kiss you cause I don't wanna wake you Let your mommy get some sleep No, I know why I'm leaving now It's still not easy to do When I come back home First thing I see is you It's alright now Carrie's here Carrie's here Carrie's here All right, that's amazing. Thank you. Todd Leiter Weintraub, I really want to thank you for being my first guest ever. And um, seriously, 
thank you. This is this has been incredible. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for making me your first guest ever. I, I am honored. It's it's got growing pains, and there might need to be some re-record. But seriously, thank you. This went so much better than I could have hoped it could have. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for lunch. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime. See that? Hear that? The famous cat chronicle feeds its guests. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The first episode of The Famous Cat Chronicle. If you've listened this far, thank you. Thank you so much. My wife has told me, you know you should keep your episodes at a half hour. And I figured, yeah, I could do that. But the story kind of needs to be told in the length that it needs to be told. And as always, if you feel that you need to stop the episode and do something else and come back to it, that's the beauty of podcasts. And I'm glad that in my own little way, I'm now part of that. Stay tuned, folks. I will keep you posted for when the mini episodes come out. And the next episode, large one, is going to be John San Juan of Hush Drops. They have a new album that they are currently in the process of of recording and mixing. And I couldn't be more excited about it. But here's a man who's had so much history in the Chicago music scene, dating back to the 1980s. And he hasn't really stopped. And not only has he done wonderful stuff with Hush Drops, he's also done some solo work, and he's done so many side projects that'll make your head spin. Certainly did mine, and I think both of us had a lot of time going through his musical past. So please stay tuned for that. And folks, while you're staying in place, self-quarantining, listen to Phil Angotti. He has been doing some amazing songs each day posted on his Facebook. He did Every Night by Paul McCartney and just such wonderful stuff. Please watch the Beastie Boys movie, which will probably be coming out the Friday that this episode comes out as well. I'm looking forward to watching that. And there's all sorts of wonderful, great music-related stuff. Folks, the music is out there. It's just waiting for you to discover it. Thanks for listening to this, and we'll talk to you soon. That one might be the keeper. Yeah.